This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. This week, we're honored to have as our guest, the legendary John W. Bluford III. Mr. Bluford is the founder and president of the Bluford Healthcare Leadership Institute, BHLI. He served as the president and CEO of Truman Medical Centers, or TMC, for 15 years prior to that role. And prior to his role at TMC, he served for 21 years in various leadership capacities at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, including the last six years as, as its CEO. And John Bluford's tenure at TMC and the Hennepin County Medical Center is part of a distinguished career in hospital and health system administration that spanned more than four decades. He's nationally known as a healthcare innovator. He's been recognized by Modern Healthcare and Becker's Hospital Review as one of the most influential people in healthcare. And John served as a chair of the American Hospital Association's Board of Trustees. And he's also spent a career in service to others and has served on numerous boards throughout his career. Over the last seven years, he's served on the Board of Trustees for Western Governors University, the leading online university in the country with the College of Health Professions that's deeply involved in the provision of workforce readiness to deliver on the promise of high-value, high-quality care that delivers on equitable outcomes. You know, Eric, I couldn't be more excited to have Mr. Bluford on our podcast because his work with the Bluford Healthcare Leadership Institute is, in my mind, the epitome of value-based care leadership. BHLI provides an intense professional development program designed to expose undergraduate scholars with exceptional leadership potential to today's challenging healthcare landscape and cultivating them for leadership roles where they'll serve to eliminate disparities in healthcare. The Institute was created by John Bluford as a way to advance health equity in today's healthcare system by sponsoring, mentoring, and coaching underrepresented talent for healthcare leadership and creating opportunities for the emerging leaders to improve health outcomes for minority and vulnerable populations. Through experiential learning, case studies, and didactic activities supported by coaching, mentoring, and sponsoring, the Blueford Healthcare Leadership Institute is proving that if you can see it, you can be it. 
In the eight years it's been in operation, BHLI has mentored 113 scholars through its leadership development program and coordinated 82 internships at 42 premier healthcare sites on behalf of those scholars. BHLI is strategically and positively impacting the field of healthcare through its development of a pipeline of diverse, culturally competent talent that is committed to improving access to quality, affordable healthcare among underserved populations. In this episode, you're going to learn from John Bluford about culturally competent leadership to eliminate disparities in healthcare. Let's now hear from the one and only John W. Bluford as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. John, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on this week. Good morning. You have a storied career as a healthcare executive leading change in organizations to become more competitive, customer service oriented and innovative. I mean, the most story chapter in your executive leadership journey was as president and CEO of Truman Medical Centers, which is a Kansas City based health system. That was a position you held for 15 years before retiring in 2014 to commit yourself entirely to the Blueford Healthcare Leadership Institute. And during your tenure at TMC, you became nationally recognized for your work and profitably running safety net hospitals while implementing holistic healthcare strategies such as food markets. And you were really sought after as a leader in improving the health of marginalized and minoritized communities. And you led TMC to become one of the top five academic medical centers in the country with a stage seven HEMS designation, putting it in the top 2% of health systems with regard to HIT implementation. And under your leadership, annual net revenue increased by $283 million, and you also oversaw capital and technology investments of more than $500 million. But I think most importantly, you know what I'm most impressed about, John, with your career is you've made a true impact on population health by providing a disproportionate share of charity care compared to other hospitals. And this unwavering vision and extraordinary commitment to provide high-quality health care for the underserved ultimately led you to the founding of the Blueford Healthcare Leadership Institute, BHLI, a nonprofit organization that strives to advance health equity by sponsoring, mentoring, and coaching underrepresented talent for healthcare leadership and creating opportunities for emerging leaders to improve health outcomes for minority and vulnerable populations. So I wanted to ask you, John, as we start our, our discussion today, what made you decide to launch the Blueford Healthcare Leadership Institute in 2013? And can you share the founding story and provide our listeners with an overview of the social impact that the Institute has made over the last eight years? And how does this work in cultivating leaders to eliminate health disparities, support the broader value-based care movement that we're currently undergoing in our country? Yes, I, I certainly can. Uh, thank you for that great synopsis of 44 years of experiences in the healthcare space. And I'll just simply mention, I, I do need to give credit, one, to all the great people that I've worked with over these years, and, and two, my experiences of 22 years in Minneapolis at Hennepin County Medical Center, and prior to that, Cook County Hospital, where I got my start. That being said, thanks for giving me an opportunity to share my, my little story on the Blueford Healthcare Leadership Institute. I typically cite two things that are the genesis and inspiration for me starting this 501c3 nonprofit. And the first case scenario is my experience in 1981 at Harvard University 
in one of their mid-careerist programs, whereby my employer sent me to Cambridge for six weeks, and I really learned how the sausage is made in the healthcare space. I was 31, 32 years old at the time. The cohort at Harvard was much older than I, folks in their early to mid 40s. And I learned both from the superb faculty at Harvard, the case study method, and my colleagues in my cohort. And as a result of that experience and learning and exposure, I just had a totally different view and a pathway to success in the healthcare space. When I got back to Minneapolis, my career kind of exploded right in front of me with different opportunities presented to me that I took advantage of. So that's kind of case study number one. Case study number two, so later on in my career, I served as a preceptor for a number of graduate school programs in the country, most notably the University of Minnesota and University of Alabama, Birmingham, and to a limited extent, NYU out of New York, whereby those institutions uh, afforded me the opportunity to work with their graduate students, sometimes for a summer, sometimes for a full year fellowship. And those students would follow me day in and day out hopefully uh, benefited from the experiences that I exposed them to, certainly as much as I benefit from having them there, because as you might expect, if you've got students following you around all day, you need to be the top of your game. And those experiences uh, stuck with me. What also stuck with me was the fact that over 10 to 12 years of those preceptorships, I never got minority students. You might want to pause for a second. I never got minority students. Well, how is that? Why is that? Simply put, there were not minority students in the pipelines for the most part. So I went to the county board, the Hennepin County Board of Governors or Commissioners in Minneapolis, uh, solicited some funds that allowed me as the CEO of their hospital to go to Morehouse College in Atlanta and recruit a young man to come and work with me over the summer. And that process continued for 15 years. When I left Minneapolis, I did the same thing when I was at Truman Medical Center. So in effect, I am creating a pipeline of undergraduate students that hopefully would go on to graduate school and then avail themselves to the kind of internships and fellowships that I was doing at universities. So herein lies the underpinning and the, the coursework, the process of the BHLI. Basically, it's a two-week didactic experiential program in Kansas City that's modeled after the Harvard University program, whereby national and local speakers come and present themselves to our students. And then secondly, a summer later, those same undergraduate students are placed in renowned institutions across the country for a paid internship. I think what's significant about our internships that it is purposefully 
uh, geared toward the C-suite, our intent and purposes and mission of the BHLI is to create leaders for the future that will eliminate healthcare disparities among minority and vulnerable patient populations over the next two generations. Repeat, over the next two generations. This is not an easy process. But those students do get exposed to C-suite leaders, to the board of governors when possible, so that they have a clear understanding of what it takes to be a leader in that kind of space. The underlying theme of it is if you can see it, you can be it. It's about exposure, access, and networking. And I'm very proud to say, it's one of the best things that I've ever done. And I'm very, very fortunate to have done a number of things that have helped a lot of people. But in this case, in, in less than 10 years, we've got 90 undergraduate students who've actually graduated from undergrad school. And those 90 some students have had internships that number in the 80s. And they've been on 42 different sites around the country. And many of those students, 80 plus of them, are now working in the healthcare space. Over two dozen of them are in clinical spaces, whether it be nurses or physicians or dentists. We've got two dozen plus that are on the business side in management and supply chain and in industry uh, in insurance businesses. Two people are working with uh, Deloitte accounting firm in their healthcare space. Got a young woman that's working for the Federal Reserve Bank in the socioeconomic determinant space. Number of our students are now in public health and I expect that to grow. A number of them are in pharmacy and few of them are in bioengineering and we're looking for more of those kinds of students. So I expect many of these young people to be in prominent positions in the next 10 to 15 years that will make a difference for the communities that they serve. I can go on and on, but that gives you a good foothold on uh, what we're trying to do with the Blueford Healthcare Leadership Institute. John, I absolutely love the overview that you just gave us. You used some terms that I'm going to repeat back to you. You talked about uh, seeing it and being it. What you've done is created this amazing vision for people to have opportunities. And I'm thinking about the experiences that we have in life set us up to realize and recognize and take advantage of opportunities that we have. And that, and you just explained how you did that in your own career, and then you're how you're now doing it for for these individuals. And I just love it. It's truly amazing. And, and that's going to stick with me forever. Just that if you can see it, then you can be it. And John, I want to move us to talk about Black History Month. And it's time for us to pay tribute to the generations of African Americans who struggled with adversity to achieve full citizenship in American society. And during this time of reverence, it seems that the palpable pain and frustration of social injustice for African Americans is more visceral than it's ever been in my lifetime. 
a cultural zeitgeist for civil rights and social justice has been awakened in the collective consciousness of all ethnicities in the context of George Floyd's murder and other atrocities of racial discrimination in recent years. Additionally, there's now also a heightened sense of awareness of health inequities in our country, a result of exacerbated health outcomes triggered by COVID-19 and pre-existing disparities that have been magnified under the microscope of the pandemic. All of this said on the positive side, there's never been a time in the post-civil rights era where there have been so many positive breakthroughs and substantial strides made, both politically and economically, for African Americans. And the call for improved social justice and health equity in our society does show that we're moving in the right direction, but we have a lot more work to do. There definitely is not a better time than now, Black History Month, to acknowledge that Black history is American history and should be acknowledged and celebrated continuously as fundamental to the strength and diversity of our country. As we take this time to celebrate the legacy of countless Black Americans that have shaped our history, can you provide your perspective on what this month means to you as an African-American leader? And how do you think we can use this moment to elevate the voices behind positive social change, to provide inspiration and encouragement for those in marginalized communities who are still dealing with the structural barriers posed by institutional racism? Well, Daniel, I really appreciate your sensitivity to the issue. And you might be a little bit surprised at my response. And I think the best way for me to address it is to have everyone acknowledge that all of the problems represented in your question will take more than a moment to fix. It's gonna take more than a week to fix. It's gonna take more than a month to fix. It's going to take more than a decade to fix. It's going to take generations to fix because the problems are embedded in generations. Whether you want to start 400 years ago with Project 1619 or the signing of the Independence Declaration in the 1700s, the end of slavery, it's generational problems that we're trying to deal with. So I don't get overly excited about a Black History Week or Black History Month. I think what we need to get to or where we need to be is that the accomplishments of minorities and Black Americans and their achievements are celebrated routinely, just like everyone else. And in fact, we need to get to the point that Black history is American history and should be treated as such. And that has been my approach in my career. That is the approach that we've taken with the BHLI. In other words, it's not about being a Black executive. It's about being a good executive. You're going to be Black. So that does not have to be accentuated. What does need to be accentuated is the quality of work that's being done. And that's how I address that question. It's, it's not infrequently that I'm asked to try to give a positive spin to it. A positive spin is simply that Black achievement is simply achievement, just like everyone else's, and should be celebrated just like everyone else's. I guess one of the things I'm saying, Daniel, is that all of these accomplishments should be seen 
independent of race. When we get to that point, a lot of our problems will dissipate. Yeah, that makes 100% sense to me, John. I really appreciate that answer. Well, John, I know our society is really focused on race, and we referenced some of that earlier in our discussion. Like there's this elevation of national consciousness, particularly around social justice and health equity. And it's definitely been elevated over these last few years. And in this movement to value-based care, it can't be overstated at this point just how integral health equity is and the design and the re-engineering of payment models I mean, we had Liz Fowler, the director of the CMS Innovation Center on our show just a few weeks ago, and she discussed how CMS is now considering equity in all stages of payment model development, including ideation, model design, recruitment, implementation, valuation. I mean, CMS is very intentional right now about vocalizing their plans to embed health equity in every aspect of value-based payment to increase focus on underserved populations. And it's really encouraging to see how the health value movement is evolving through these enlightened perspectives and increasing societal awareness around health inequities. And it seems like we're now even considering the inclusion of equity in the numerator of the value equation. So I'm really interested, John, in your perspective on how this elevated national consciousness may be a catalyst to advance health equity. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think our healthcare industry can better position itself to recognize the opportunity in this moment to address our most vulnerable populations to reduce disparities in care? I agree with all of what you've said. I'm very happy to see that the federal government is making adjustments to some of its uh, programming to take into account vulnerabilities and disparities and the condition that many of the patient populations that we serve reside. So that's a good thing. I think the national consciousness, understanding, and now being aware that there are disparities is a great thing. Many of us in the, the business particularly those in safety net environments, have recognized this all of our professional lives. Others have not. And unfortunately, one of the good things of the COVID crisis is that it brought it to the forefront. So I'm very happy about that. We can't fix the problem if we don't recognize there is a problem and that disparities do in fact exist. And those disparities have been perpetuated systematically for generations through segregation, poor public education, career opportunities, housing, and the laws uh, that prevented many of our citizens from purchasing homes. Opportunity and hope has been lost in a lot of our patient populations. And now I see a crack in that armor where things may change. I think it's gonna take strong, pervasive leadership that sustains itself over a long period of time. I think healthcare and hospital executives play a, a large role in that, but society must play a large role in that as well as public policy. And we need leaders that have the foresight and as my grandfather would say, the gumption to pursue what's right and move forward, even though it might be painful for some. 
So really, you know, there's a whole African proverb that says if if you want to change the dance, you got to change the music. So we got to change the music and we'll get a new dance outcome if we do it thoughtfully and over time. I think hospitals should play a very critical role in that. One, we do the care. And two, more times than not, we are a dominant player in the communities that we serve. More times than not, those hospital institutions have credibility in those respective communities. And if in fact, we have good servant leadership in those hospitals, then perhaps resources and the intelligence of the institution can be used to try and solve some of these problems, population health being one. Sean, I appreciate your mention of the need for this strong leadership. You know, there's never been any period in American history where the health of Blacks was equal to that of whites. Disparity has been built into the design of the current healthcare system. There's a lot of times where we unknowingly foster racial discrimination. And research has been able to irrefutably show that if you control for all variables that may contribute to health disparities, like education, income, access to health insurance, that African-Americans and other groups of color still get the worst quality health care in the country. This is partly due to communication barriers and racial stereotyping based on false beliefs that perpetuate inequities in care outcomes. At WGU, we believe that the solution for inequity is cultural competence, where you have diverse leaders and well-trained, qualified, culturally competent workforce that mirrors the diverse population it serves. I know you're passionate about this as well. And under your leadership, the Blueford Healthcare Leadership Institute has developed an intense professional development program designed to expose undergraduate scholars with exceptional leadership potential to today's challenging healthcare landscape, cultivating them for future leadership roles where they'll serve to eliminate disparities in healthcare. How important to you is cultural competence of leadership in healthcare organizations to improve care delivery in service to marginalized communities and minority populations? And what role does experiential learning, case studies, and other didactic activities supported by coaching and mentoring play in the elimination of health disparities? And finally, what's needed to provide inspiration for healthcare organizations to transform how they deliver care through culturally competent leadership? I'll tell you, based on my experiences, culture is everything. I can recall years in the Twin Cities when we had a major influx of Southeast Asians, immigrants. We had a major influx of Somalian immigrants. And we've also had a large urban population of Native Americans. In each of those instances, you might think that language would have been a barrier, particularly with the Somalians and the Hmong and the Southeast Asians. And it didn't take us very long at our hospital to realize we can bring in interpreters for the language barriers, but what we have to have a better appreciation for is the culture, because that's going to drive what will be effective uh, case management for those patients and treatments. So if you extend that to our indigenous population and American Blacks and brown folks in our country, 
I think our institutions need to really appreciate and understand the come from where many of our patients are so that we can close this divide of disparities. You know, I'm, I frequently say poor people don't want to be poor. They didn't strike out to want to be poor. And it wasn't an accident that they're poor. It's not because they're lazy they're poor. There's systematic issues and racism particularly that help to generate the condition that they're in. So our leadership needs to have an appreciation for that. And that's kind of embedded in much of the content of our curriculum at the BHLI. It speaks heavily on socioeconomic determinants of health, because as you well know, those socioeconomic determinants and that zip code that you live in impact your healthcare status much more so than the healthcare system can. So that tells me that the healthcare system and hospitals particularly really need to start thinking outside of the bed, and many of them have been. I've been extolling that principle for now over 15 years. I'm real happy to see a lot of collaborative activity among hospitals when they're looking at housing, when they're looking at school systems, when they're looking at developing career paths and jobs for communities that they serve. That's going to make a big difference. Our theme in terms of defining what leadership is, is kind of tied to love, hope, and passion got to have a passion for this kind of work to get into it because it's hard work. It's not easy. And sometimes it's not even pleasant, but you really need to understand and appreciate the patients that you serve and and understand that basically what you and I and, and our patients want is dignity. It's not about sympathy. It's not about making a lot of money. It's it's about their dignity, and we need to supply and offer that to them in everything we do. We had a program at Truman a good 10, 12 years ago out of the Obama administration on case management. They gave us a considerable amount of money to case manage about 400 patients that had chronic diseases and were frequent users of the emergency room and inpatient services. It's just phenomenal what you can do when you learn the circumstance of those patients and why they were missing their appointments in the outpatient. Well, the bus schedules don't run according to our our outpatient scheduling, for one, and they don't have cars and so forth and so on. They might not even live at one address. You know, you go and ask the homeless, well, what can we do to help you? The response will be, well, how about giving me a home? That would help. So it's really fairly, in some respects, simplistic if you're willing to listen and understand the predicament and circumstance that many of these patient populations are in. One of our doctors once told me, and it stuck with me a long time, Eric and Daniel, and that is, You really don't know a patient until you've gone to that patient's home. And you know, you don't don't have to be a genius to understand and appreciate what that statement means. The other thing I've noticed over the years, 
I used to bring patients to our board meetings, you know, maybe once a year, maybe once every other year or so, so that they could tell their story. And it puts a whole different feeling and sensitivity to an importance to what we do and how we do it. And the last thing I'll just add to this for some of your audience, it's amazing sometimes what you learn from entry-level positions in your institution. People always talk about population health and treating the community. Well, half the community are part of the 4,000 employees that are working at the hospital. And in these big systems, 10,000 employees or 20,000 employees, that is the community. That's your workforce. Spend a lot of time in understanding your workforce that might be another entree to understanding the community better. I'll give you an example. Years ago, our hospital decided to do payroll checks by payroll deduction. For all the obvious reasons, it's more efficient, it's cost saving, this and that. And no sooner than we wanted to do that, we learned and understood that a high percentage of our employees did not have checking accounts. Isn't that interesting? When you do the research, you understand how many of our employees did not trust the banking system, did not know how to do a checking account, so forth and so on. So we really went through a lot of financial literacy. We were fortunate enough to uh, encourage U.S. Bank to come and build one of their branch banks inside of our building, in fact right across the hallway from the cafeteria so that all of our employees could have checking accounts. And that led to financial literacy and home buying. It's probably one of the best things that we ever did for that community. Not the number of surgeries, not the number of inpatient beds we have, not the number of outpatient visits, but financial literacy and helping people get on their feet so that they can do better by themselves. That's a thought, understanding the come from and the whys. Well, John, that was such a thoughtful explanation of social and economic determinants of health and the role that health systems play in in addressing some of these needs for the communities that they serve. And it's clear now that the industry is really thinking about serving patients, not only using your term, like, you know, focusing on the patient in the bed, but also thinking about these boundary spanning activities where they're trying to understand where patients live and work, play, worship, eat and gather, really how they can play a part in the totality of that to improve the quality of their care, restore health, and ultimately reduce the cost of doing that. And it's challenging for a lot of these health system leaders, I know, to make investments. I mean, you referenced initiatives like uh, supporting patients and obtaining stable housing, or if you're looking at addressing food insecurity, these investments to address health equity and population health, I mean, they're very capital intensive. And I know many view this as a public good that 
probably should be funded by the government and community benefit organizations. I'm sure there's healthcare executives that are thinking, you know, this isn't my responsibility to address these things. That's the government's role. And I, I know there's a convergence now in, in that thinking and where, you know, healthcare now is exploring partnerships. And a lot of the innovation now that, that we see happening in addressing social determinants of health, it's with these fully capitated groups that are able to use the funding that they get from these uh, capitated contracts to invest in programs that break down those social barriers that are institutionally embedded in communities, which still, unfortunately, most people don't even recognize that they exist. And leveraging value-based payment, I know there's a big opportunity for health systems to form these partnerships with communities and develop these multi-partner strategies that are outside of the core health system that really focuses at the neighborhood level. And there was a quote that you made, I think it was 10 years ago, you were presenting at the, the AHA conference and you said the following, you know, your community has its own dynamics that create its own barriers, you know, solid walls that stand between people and the health that will allow them to achieve their full potential. So tearing down these walls will be painfully slow, but we'll never get to that destination if we don't start the journey. And that's such a powerful statement today, but I think about the time that you made this statement 10 years ago, and that was way before the rest of the healthcare industry really even began talking about social determinants of health. So I wanted to hear more of your thoughts around these types of interventions that need to take place in communities and how health systems should form partnerships to reduce disparities of care. Can you provide your perspective on how health system leaders should approach partnerships and community to, to meet these social needs for the vulnerable and underserved? And how can these organizations better address these social needs in a more individualized, culturally relevant way? Eric, thank you for reminding me of the investiture speech at the uh, American Hospital Association's meeting uh, some 10 years ago, I guess. One of the things that has happened and is happening are community partnerships headed by a number of notable hospitals and hospital systems. That's a good thing. You know, I always wondered when we had this big push toward community benefits and all of these reports that our hospitals had to submit to the government. How can you have a community benefit program without all of the hospitals getting together who serve the community? And the patients go to two and three multiple hospitals oftentimes. And that always struck me as odd that I could sit in my office and prepare a community benefits report for my hospital without including the benefits of the hospital three miles down the road. So those partnerships, and they're happening all over the country. I know there's some things going on in Chicago in a very big way with Rush Health and Mount Sinai and others. I know there's a lot of activity in North Carolina between Navant and Atrium Health, and they're pulling all their resources together and seeing what kind of difference they can make and measuring those differences. And I think the only way that we can see concede, it's gotta be community by community or zip code by zip code. And once you get a handle on that geographical area, then move to the next. The one thing I will say, you know, when you talk about public good, I like the term common good because you get into a political back and forth when you talk about the public good and people might confuse that with government intervention. 
And I think there are leaders right there in your own collaborative that will say, you know, the private sector needs to play a major role in fixing this. And whether it's being uh, getting into the educational system of schools or grocery stores or housing, hospitals have the wherewithal and the resources to make a dent in those issues. So I think that among the players, I remember years ago, Governor Levitt used to say, well, who's gonna jump for and lead this process? It's gonna be the insurance industry, it's gonna be the physicians, it's gonna be hospitals or somebody else or the government. And I would resignate to the hospital sector doing it. They've got the resources and the wherewithal to pull all of those other entities to the table and start making a difference. John, the elimination of health disparities among minority and vulnerable populations has a long-term benefit to our entire society. And you mentioned this earlier. And by cultivating a pipeline of culturally competent, underrepresented scholars for leadership roles in healthcare, a community-based transformation can truly take place. And I'm interested in how workforce development and innovation among underrepresented scholars will impact the 21st century healthcare industry and break the intergenerational cycle of disadvantage in underserved communities. When I think about the families that are impacted by the empowered leadership of BHLI scholar alumni, they have the potential to not only improve patient outcomes in the immediate sense, they can actually impact future generations to reduce intergenerational disparities that are deeply rooted by children not achieving maximization of health, well-being, and development, so they can optimize their potential as an adult. Can you cast a vision for how the elimination of health disparities can ultimately improve community health, create more economic prosperity, and create intergenerational wealth that can ultimately break the cycle of poverty and disadvantage? Yeah, sure. I'll make a stab at that. And I think most experts will tell you we need to start with early childhood education. We can talk about colleges and graduate schools, but the game starts in early childhood education. And an investment in that area would help. Improving neighborhoods and housing conditions will help. Understanding the social context of the populations we serve will help. A political will to make a difference, public policy will help. We've failed with the war on poverty. We've failed with civil rights. You can argue that there's still a lot to be done with both Medicaid and Medicare. The Hill-Burton Act is another thing we probably could have done better with. There have been many advances in technology and research over the last 50 or 60 years, but we still have these disparities. We still have African-American patients leading 12 of the 15 leading causes of death. African-Americans die younger. They are sicker. They're less productive because they are sicker. We need changes. And I think those changes need to happen in all of the chronic diseases that ails these patient populations. It's not a secret. It's 
cardiovascular disease, it's diabetes, it's asthma, sickle cell, it's hypertension, obesity, it's depression, stress kills. Racism is stressful to the oppressed. We need to look at that and fix it over time, over a long period of time. So hospitals are dead center in all of those elements and they've got the wherewithal to bring people to the table, help it happen. I've just gotten a, a greater appreciation over the last 20 years of how public policy shapes the direction of society, its ills and its benefits. And we, we've got to get people who understand what the problem is and are dedicated to fixing it. You know, I think hospitals have to play an important role. I think the educational system plays an important role, but no one sector can do it all. It's got to be a collective process. And our position in what we're trying to train and, and bringing forward thinking leaders like Pat Merlin, who used to be at Ascension, and Lloyd Dean, and Kevin Lofton, and young people like Nicholas Tejada in El Paso, Texas, people like Kathleen Sebelius, people like Governor Levitt, bringing these great minds together that had the wherewithal to bring people together with a very focused and intentional game plan to alleviate these disparities. I think during the pandemic, many of the uh, TV spokespeople were quick to say, we got to get this pandemic thing resolved. There will not be economic health until there's public health. And that plays over and over, and particularly among minority communities. There's got to be strong public, healthy, strong thinking, strong body individuals before there can be economic health. So health and education drive the economy and people need to be appreciative of that. Well, John, I couldn't agree more. Health and education truly are those drivers for a better tomorrow. And you referenced in your comments the importance of early education. It's just such a vital aspect of having a healthy, productive, happy society. I also wanted to get your thoughts on how to improve equity in the act access and attainment of higher education, you know, equity and healthcare leadership education does seem to be an opportunity equalizer that ultimately makes a difference in the health and prosperity of, in communities. And you referenced in your comments earlier how when you started, you didn't see African-American students in, in programs in healthcare leadership. They just weren't there. So there's now a recognition that we have to resolve for that. And healthcare institutions of higher learning are certainly thinking a lot about this, but also the industry is realizing that care delivered by interdisciplinary care teams that's inspired by culturally competent leadership is more effective in delivering those optimal patient outcomes. And you have to start with the education as the foundation to make that happen. And there's so many ways to eliminate barriers and allocate resources to provide equity and access and learning to support a more diverse workforce. And uh, Western Governors University, WGU, which I know you're a board member of, is really leading in this. And the College of Health Professions 
there believes a solution to health inequity really involves reskilling and upskilling in the workforce through scalable educational programs that provide affordable pathways for establishing competency and population health and health equity. And given your work at the Blueford Healthcare Leadership Institute and understanding of both healthcare and higher education, I'd love to hear your perspective on this higher education opportunity. I mean, how can higher ed address and better serve underserved learner populations to build a more qualified, culturally competent healthcare workforce that truly mirrors the diversity of the population it serves. And, you know, given that a key enabler for health equity is workforce readiness to deliver on the promise of value-based care and health equity, how should universities be thinking about reskilling and upskilling the workforce through educational programs and other pathways to learning that are more affordable and more focused on health equity? Yeah, Eric, I mean, you said it all. I mean, the, the educational process has to be both accessible and affordable. And as you mentioned, WGU is in the forefront on both of those areas, as well as being receptive and acceptive of uh, minority patient populations and vulnerable patient populations. That is a very large key to success long-term. The other thing is, you know, our educational systems need themselves to be culturally competent. They need to do some work to make sure that the cultural despaired patient populations and student populations are cared for and there's a sensitivity toward their needs and their come from. Again, it's all about culture. The workforce readiness, all of our citizens need more exposure to the challenges of our nation relative to its overall health. We're not very good at what we do. We're very expensive. And on the high end, those extraordinary healthcare situations that need help and and high technology things are pretty good at that. Coordinating it, not so much. But we're not very good at the, the basics, the in-home stuff, the primary care things, making sure that carcinogens are not in the community to make people sick in the first place. We're not very strong on preventive measures and preventive health. And here again, I think that needs to start at an early age, we can't wait until our children are 10 and 11 and 12 years old and decide that we want them to be neurosurgeons going into high school if they're still reading at a fifth grade level. That just doesn't work. So the early childhood education, again, is important. I think we can all do better, including myself, understanding different points of view. And that speaks to the different experiences that many of our communities and patient populations have endured for generations. We need to understand that. Some of the better things, as I look back, that we've done, we actually had a corporate academy on our campus at the hospital. And it was based on the, the work that John Deere and Motorola did years ago, many years ago with college courses and the instructors from all of the universities in our town came to our campus in the evenings and taught. And our employees got everything 
from GED preparation courses to master's degrees, doctors, environmental service workers, and everybody in between. That was a powerful statement to our employee staff in our community. In fact, we started tutoring the children of our employees through that academy. That's powerful. I hesitate to say it wasn't my idea. It was one of my staff people's idea. That was a great idea and made a difference. And it made a difference in the economy of our business because our turnover rates start going down because people appreciated the fact that we were sincere and wanting to make a difference in their lives and through them, their communities. So everything that you've mentioned in this whole conversation thus far is so complex, so multifactorial, so ingrained in the culture of our country. And it's gonna be a concerted effort to make a change. And in all that I do, I never compromise or fool myself that this is gonna be fixed in my lifetime, probably your lifetime. And in fact, it won't be fixed in my grandson's lifetime. He's nine years old, but maybe his children could get the benefit of what we're doing if we do it right. Convenience, affordability of education is prime. I tried to get a pathway for some of our scholars to get into a graduate school program. And I won't name the school, but it's a prominent graduate school in uh, healthcare administration. And they have a program for young professionals that can do a combined program, come on campus on the weekends or in the evenings, do the, the rest of it virtually, two-year program. You know how much it costs? $120,000. Really? $120,000 for that needed engagement in education. Well, that's not going to work for a lot of people. You don't have to be minorities to not be able to afford that as an early careers. So we're going to have to start working on that a little bit. And as you said, WGU is well on its way to doing some of that. Well, John, value-based healthcare emerged more than two decades ago with the goal to improve quality while containing costs. And we talked about it a little while ago, but its impact on racial health disparities has been limited. And last year in Health Affairs, there was an article entitled, Healthcare Must Value Black Lives. And it proposed a framework to incorporate racial justice into value-based healthcare, including the re-engineering of pay-for-performance models so that they include health equity as a key financial measure for success. Even with the realignment of financial incentives over time, it may still prove difficult to counteract the structural racism in policies that result in poor social determinants of health and health inequity. How can we as a country build the economic will to reorient value-based care policies around racial and health justice? What role do health executives play in advocating for this change within the value-based care payment models? And just as much as universities should integrate health equity into curriculum, how can we also hardwire social justice and health equity into the health administration profession? You do it by doing it, get it done. There is a sociologist in uh, 
United Kingdom. I'm sure you're familiar with him, David Gordon. I used to start a lot of presentations that if you want to be healthy, don't be poor. Don't have poor parents. Don't work in low paying jobs and don't live in low quality housing. You can start adding violence as a public health concern. And perhaps you shouldn't be living in a violent community that would help your health tremendously. So we need leaders that understand that the social justice system is a big part of our problem. And again, it's not by accident. We don't have to get into that, but you can't exercise yourself out of poverty. You need resources and opportunities to do that. And our system, justice system and otherwise, does not always do that. One of the things that as I sit back and reflect on what's going on today and what's needed for the future is this whole issue of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And this new profession, generally speaking in the HR department, but with the designation of DEI. My feeling is that the DEI leader of your institution needs to be the chief executive officer and the chief medical officer and the chief nursing officer and the chief financial officer. That's where the buck stops. Now, if they choose to hire an administrative assistant to carry out the task, but that assistant or associate has the authority to make decisions and has access to resources to implement those decisions, so be it. Then that'll work. Otherwise, it should fall on the CEO, and he or she should be judged against the measures that show improvement in those respective areas. One thing I'm very happy about is that the system is now recognizing that a lot of the measures that the IHI and the three aims and other new modalities of payment for healthcare are now recognizing that safety net environments cannot meet some of those objectives. It's hard to send a person home on a three-day discharge plan when they don't have a home to go to. Or if the home is unsafe and not healthy, it's a guarantee that that patient will be back in two or three days. So your readmission rates go up. So there needs to be a recognition because our, our system won't improve until we improve the weakest link. And we've been describing for the last hour plus where the weakest links reside. Servant leadership who has had exposure to the dynamics of racism, to the dynamics of disparity, to the dynamics of the poor, are going to have a better chance of addressing those issues. And we need those sensitivities in place and leadership roles to do it. And that's why bringing in a diverse cohort of students, teaching them these things is very important. 
because I think their skin tone, their cultural orientation will work well with many of these patient communities that we're trying to help and they're needed. Well, they truly are, John, and this has just been an outstanding conversation. We've covered a lot of ground today with regard to health equity, social and economic determinants of health, kind of the elevation of the national consciousness and this movement to value-based care, servant leadership, cultural competency, community partnerships. But there's one thing that we haven't talked about, and I was hoping to ask you one more question just along the lines of leveraging technologies and looking at digital transformation and how we can use that as a lever to really build systems of care that's going to ultimately improve care for underserved populations. I mean, we're at this inflection point in the industry where there's outstanding capabilities and solutions out there that are advanced technologies and that provide data-driven assessments and analytics. And of course, telehealth we saw emerge during the pandemic as a, an absolute requisite component of care delivery. Um, so I guess in terms of your parting comments today, I, yeah, I just wanted to, to kind of get your thoughts on the role that healthcare technology plays in transforming the fragmented, expensive, and equitable health system. And maybe, you know, what do you envision in terms of how it can be used to improve care for marginalized communities as well? You know, technology certainly has a role, but telehealth doesn't work if you have no tele. It might be a surprise to many, but there's a major technological divide in our country, digital divide in our country as well. And that needs to be addressed if indeed we expect that this phenomenal technological advancements that are being made all the time in our country. But if you want them to touch the people who probably need it the most, we've got to work with the digital divide. Healthcare is both a science and a service, and that service must involve human touch. I mean, healthcare should be about caring. We talk a lot about the health. We don't talk as much about the caring part. A lot of our models talk about the cost dynamic, and they talk about good outcomes. They don't necessarily talk about quality of life for the patient particularly in uh, some of our senior patient populations, which is another major constituent of the cost driver. We can get a good handle on chronic disease management and preventing them and caring for the elderly. We'll knock out this cost problem, but there's got to be a focused effort on that. And technology can have a role as long as everybody is comfortable in using it and has the wherewithal to use it. So I'm all for the technology and certainly uh, bought enough of it. The electronic health record is not the end all and the answer all. Physicians and nurses talking to patients is. You need that continuity of care and documentation over the total span of caring for the patient, but it shouldn't eliminate or erase the human interface that's so important to all patients and particularly those patients in need. So I'm cautious about the technological transformation. Cautious, not against it, for it, but cautious. 
Well, John, I I just personally want to thank you for joining us. You've provided such sage wisdom and profound insights and helping us think about how we eliminate some of these health disparities in our society. And I just can't thank you enough, of course, for your service and leadership to our health industry. And it's been a great honor to spend some time with you today and hosting uh, this podcast episode and showcasing some of the great work that you're doing there at the Blueford Healthcare Leadership Institute. Hey, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and Please continue to what what you're doing there. We all uh, need to push in together. I'm very excited about the program that uh, Dr. Sorensen has over at Intermountain Health in terms of helping young professionals better understand servant leadership and so forth. So I think many of us are moving in the right direction, have the right ideas and are trying to put them in place. It's just not enough of us yet. We'll get there if we keep working at it. Thank you. Indeed, we'll definitely get there. And it's a race to make value work. And I I think there's a a lot of people really thinking about this and thinking about some of the root causes that create disparities and outcomes and higher costs. So again, it's been a pleasure exploring that with you today. Thank you. Thanks so much, John.